Welcome to another episode of Emancipated Human. I'm your host, Luis Fernando Misses. Today, I have uh, one of the most intelligent individuals that I know, uh, Stefan Kinsella. He is a practicing patent attorney and a libertarian writer and speaker, and he's the director of the Center for Study of Innovative Freedom. Um, and that's just one of the very few things he does. He does a whole lot more. He's worked with Misses, and he's uh, contributed in a lot of other sites and um, a lot of... Uh, enterprises so thank you thank you for um giving me this opportunity to be here um for sure. you to be here glad to be here thank you um you know i uh, talking about intellectual property you know that's that's your forte so I, i would like to touch on that first because i think that's kind of important um a lot of people tend to defend it because they think that um well i'm not gonna get into that i want to ask you first What is intellectual property, and do you think it prevents progress? Um, a good question. Um, <clears throat> you say it's my forte, and it's become my specialty primarily out of necessity rather than interest, I'll be honest. Um, my interest has always been in the basics of, of uh, Austrian economics and epistemology and libertarian rights theory. Um I happen to be an intellectual property attorney, so I started learning a great deal about how the law works, and I started noticing that this problem needed to be addressed and that no one had really addressed it completely satisfactorily. A few people had addressed it in the right way, uh, namely Benjamin Tucker and Wendy McElroy and Sam Konkin and um, Tom Palmer when I started looking into it. Uh, not, maybe not comprehensively, but they basically had the right approach. It took me a while to see that, um, just like it takes people a while to see it nowadays. I turned my attention to it because it, it became more evident in the early 90s with the advent of the internet that we needed to look into this issue and, and figure it out. And no one had really approached it recently in a systematic, comprehensive fashion with a good knowledge of the law as well. So that's why I did it. Um, honestly, I did it just to get it out of my system and to put it behind me, but everything, everyone kept turning back to that issue. So that's why I keep talking about IP. Um, I think it's largely because people don't understand it. It's a very arcane, difficult area of law. It's widely misunderstood even by people that defend it, um, and to me, that's a problem right there. You really shouldn't be defending a positive legal system of the state. If you don't really understand how it works, at least you ought to kind of stay stand back and be undecided about it or you know ambivalent. But some people are, you know, uh, determined to defend it no matter what. So intellectual property is a term which I think is actually a misnomer. It's used to describe the rights that are attempted to be protected um, by certain standard legal systems, primarily. And they're not always completely related, but there, so there's like four or five disparate legal systems that are grouped together by the legal profession and by the, the political system under the umbrella intellectual property. And that is patent law, which covers inventions, copyright law, which covers artistic uh, or creative uh, works, uh, trademark law, which has to do with the signs and the marks we use to identify the sources of goods in, in commerce and in business. And then there's a few others like trade secret and others. 
these were all separate rights. Uh, patent and copyright are the ones that are the big problems in my view, and they're the ones that are the creatures of statute and legislation. They're not evolved under the common law, uh, and they originated as uh, protectionism, a protection from competition of companies like they would have a monopoly over the sale of playing cards in a given town. Uh, because they were friends of the king or whatever, or they agreed to collect taxes for the king if he would give them a monopoly over this 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 thing. So this is just the height of protectionism and mercantilism. It ultimately resulted in the uh, statute of monopolies, which resulted in today's modern patent system. Uh, copyright resulted in the attempt to censor speech and to prevent people from spreading ideas that the crown and the and the and the uh, the, the church did not want spread. And that ultimately resulted in the statute, the, the stationer's company, the, the 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 regulation of which books could be printed, um, the guild system, the regulation of the printing press, and then the statute of Anne in 1709, and then ultimately the copyright system, starting with basically the birth of America in the late 17, uh, say early 1800s. Um, so patent and copyright are two forms of monopolistic. Interventions in the market, and they were seen as such uh, decades after they were uh, in introduced into society. And free market economists in the mid 1800s and early 1900s started opposing these privileges and these monopoly privileges. And by this time, you had entrenched interests who had depended upon these monopolies. You know, the copyright monopoly, the patent monopoly, and of course, they wanted to keep these. Monopolistic protections in place, so their their defense was to refer to them as intellectual property rights. They started referring to them as property rights, even though property rights last potentially forever, and these these rights expire after a fixed number of years. So they're clearly not property rights, but they were called property rights as part of a propaganda campaign to make them look like property rights, and they added the word intellectual to show that they were different. Because these are creations of the mind instead of creations of the hand, I suppose, something like that. So intellectual property is a modern term, which is really a propagandistic term used to refer to somewhat disparate forms of positive rights, primarily patent and copyright. That's that's pretty interesting. So <clears throat> it's not like intellectual property, in other words, is not real property. And that's the point that is uh, so important to make. So <clears throat> how do they differ from real property rights? So the way I approach this issue is to try to be very careful with terminology. And the reason I'm so careful, some people think I'm being um, uh, pettifogging or too um, uh, nitpicking with terms is because I have seen over the last 15, 20 years in the debates about this topic that if you're not extremely precise with your terms, then the proponents of intellectual property, whether intentionally or because they're confused, um, they will turn any ambiguity in your formulation against you. So I'm always very precise or try to be precise. So for example, the term property itself I think is a problem. So is the term self-ownership, and so is the term government instead of state. So for example, I always try to use the word state instead of government now because uh, a minarchist will say, well, government means the governing institutions of society like law and order, and if you're against government, then you're against law and order. So I say I'm against the state, not against the government. depends on how you define it, these types of things. 
in the in the concept of property to me the question is not what is property or is that or, or is this thing property the question is if you identify a given thing that people can have a conflict over who's the owner of it in other words who has a property right in it so i try to use property as a relational term property is a relationship between a, an owner or a person and the thing owned and it, actually it's a relationship between him and other people about that thing so it's a relationship between me and everyone else about who has the right to use that resource most people agree that resources that are scarce that people can have a conflict over need to be used as means of action in everyday life and in commerce and in modern society for for those resources to be used peacefully and productively Without the threat of uh, violence from other people trying to take those things from you, we have property rights which specify who gets to use these things. And the libertarian view is a certain consistent uh, vision of who the owners should be, but every legal system uh, has a, a vision of who the owners uh, should be. It's just that our vision is consistent and based upon the natural situation that has to arise and has to emerge for these resources to be ever be used in the first place. So the critics of my view, the proponents of intellectual property often mischaracterize a view like mine and they'll say that I want to deny the status of property rights to ideas, let's say. Well, half of them say this because the other half of them say that they 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 vigorously deny that they're in favor of property rights and ideas. They say they're only in favor of property rights in the applications of ideas, whatever that means. And believe me, I've been a patent attorney and a copyright attorney for 20 years, and I'm still not sure what these people mean when they say they try to make these fine distinctions between property rights and ideas versus applications of ideas. I, there's really no… Strong difference, but some of the more honest supporters of IP will admit that they're in favor of property rights in ideas, um, and their argument is that something like this. They'll take a version of Locke, which they've heard, and their version of Locke is this. Locke said that there are unowned resources in the world or resources owned in common given to us through Adam by God through Adam to the humans, human race as a com in commons. And if you – because you're a self-owner, you own yourself, and therefore you own your labor, and therefore you own some unowned resource which you mix your labor with. That's the basic Lockean approach that people are uh, taught, and I think that approach is heavily flawed and heavily full of metaphors which lead them astray. Um, so first of all, you don't need to introduce God or – the fact that the world is owned in commons because God gave it to humanity. Um, you just have to recognize that there are some resources that are not claimed or owned yet. Second of all, you don't have to say you're a self-owner. You need to say that you own your body. You have the best claim to your body. If you start talking about the self, you introduce all kinds of metaphysical questions which lead to controversy and equivocation and confusion. Third of all, I don't think you can say coherently that you own your labor. Any more than you could say that you own your action. What you own is your body, which means the right to control your body, and that gives you the ability to labor with it or perform actions. So to say that you own your body and your labor is like double counting in a weird way, and this leads to danger, to, to mistake, because 
then you start thinking just like they do in the final step of this that therefore you own what you create with your labor. Now the fountainhead or the, the, the foundation of the libertarian Lockean reasoning is not that you own what you create, but it's that you own what you have a better claim to. That is if you mix your labor with an unowned resource, you establish a connection with that resource. So you own the resource because you have a better connection to it, because you've demonstrated that you've put up a boundary or a border around this resource. That's the reason you have a better claim to it, and that's why the Lockean reasoning basically works. But it's not because you own yourself or your labor or that when you mix your labor with something, you own it or that when you create something, you own it. In fact, the very notion of creation is very confused. Metaphysically, we don't create anything. Even Ayn Rand recognized this. We only rearrange things. That is, we use our effort to interfere with the course of events in the world. We take scarce resources or scarce means. We rearrange them to suit our purposes, and we make them into newer shapes, different shapes. Maybe they're more valuable, and therefore we create value or wealth, but we do not create new things that have new property titles. So for example, if I take a, a piece of marble and I carve a statue out of it, I own the statue but not because I created a statue. I own the statue because I already owned the marble from which I carved it. If I didn't own the marble from which I carved the statue, I wouldn't have had the right to carve the statue in the first place. So you don't need to have a separate theory that says we own what we create, and if you discard that as one of the sources of ownership, and I think we should… Then you never get to the secondary point of the IP advocates, which is that, okay, we've established that if you create something, you own it, and therefore if you create a new idea that's useful, you own that because the original premise is just simply um, incorrect. Now, as to your question about would we have uh, less innovation or more innovation without intellectual property, uh, to my mind… Well, you have to distinguish types of intellectual property. Like I said, I think this 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 grouping is a… Largely legalistic one, excuse me, and a propagandistic one, which is not really completely rationally coherent. In other words, there are different types of legal rules that are unjust, and it doesn't always make sense to group them together. So, for example, laws against uh, evading the income tax or laws against um, um, uh, defacing the flag. Laws against uh, uh, espionage, laws against um, uh, selling cocaine and marijuana, laws against defamation, laws against patent infringement, copyright infringement. These are all invalid laws or illegitimate laws, I would say, but they don't always necessarily share the exact same things in common. Sometimes it helps to group things together. And I do believe that you can find a common thread among many types of intellectual property and other legal systems, and that is that they amount to what I call a negative servitude. So in other words, the fundamental problem with intellectual property law is that the, the state grants a right, which can be exercised in state courts, to a given person, the holder, the so-called holder of the right, the copyright, the patent right, the trademark right. It gives them a, a, a legal right to go to court and use the state force against the person or property of another person to prevent them or to punish them or to extract damage payments from them in, for, for, for using their own resources, their own property as they see fit. Okay, So in other words, it gives them a veto right over how other people use their property. So 
if I have a copyright over how you can make a derivative work of my novel, I can tell you you are not permitted to make a sequel using your own property of my novel unless you pay me tribute, right? or you can't make this given mousetrap with patent law unless you pay me tribute or ransom, right? a royalty payment. Now, that kind of right normally has to be negotiated for in the free market. That's called a negative servitude, and it's perfectly legitimate if it's negotiated for. But in this case, the state simply grants it to the IP holder and lets them extort value or money or property from their competitor or from someone else on the market. This is the fundamental problem with intellectual property is that it undercuts the, the – uh, the homesteading rule and the contract rule, which is the basis of all civilized legal systems. I love that. That's pretty interesting. It's a little bit complex. And my <clears throat> question, my next question would be, how would this work in a voluntary society otherwise? How, and not just this specific subject, but let's say private law, how would that function? Like, what would the difference be? Between this example that you're giving me, the state, and, and, and just a, an actual voluntary society. I mean I think it's hard to sometimes imagine what the world would look like um, in a free society. Um, we have some guesses. We can extrapolate from where we've been, what we've seen in the world. We can use our imagination. We can extrapolate from where we are now to where it would be if we magnified the good parts that we see in society. And we, um, but um, – um, I think and, – and, and these inquiries are interesting, especially when it comes to um, pedagogy and uh, rhetoric and, and persuading other people because people are very concrete-bound, and they need, they need examples. So we have to come up with examples just strategically. But as a, as a matter of principle, I think – as a matter of principle, it really doesn't matter. I mean the fundamental thing is that… Look, we would not be opposed to certain state interventions like taxes and the minimum wage and regulations if we didn't think they had an effect. Now, this is, seems like a very trivial point, and maybe it is. A lot of the things I keep going back to after 20 years of thinking seem very, very, very trivial, but I notice that no one else focuses on these, and they seem to have profound um, insights. If, 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 if a given state law didn't have an effect, we wouldn't care. If if it was just an opinion, so think think about a society where we have freedom, and there's two percent of the population are communists or socialists, and they're walking around, whining all the time, complaining that we don't have a, a socialist utopia, and they're living in a capitalist free market society. Now, they might be an annoyance, but we wouldn't really care too much because they wouldn't be taxing us, right? So their opinions just wouldn't matter. They wouldn't have an effect. The only reason that we really care about state laws that exist now is that they exist. That means they have an effect. But for a state law to have an effect means it distorts the structure of society and the economy. It has to have a distorting effect. It has to change something. If it didn't change anything, we wouldn't have any reason to object to it, which means that if we were to somehow get rid of it… Things would have to change. They would have to change back towards the way they would have been without the change introduced by the state intervention in the first place. So when people challenge people like me who want to make a, ch a change in the law, want to eradicate a law, 
and they challenge us with the very idea, the audacity of proposing something that would have a change in society. Well, of course it's going to have a change in society. The reason is because the law itself is already having a distorting effect on society. So we can't deny that if we got rid of laws that it would change things. So when we come down to practical reality and we say we, – we look around us, we see a society structured in a certain way. We have the publishing industry. We have copyright lawsuits. We have um, patent trolls. We have uh, high-tech industries amassing millions of dollars worth of patents, and they structure their entire lives around this. It would be stupid to deny that getting rid of patent law and copyright law wouldn't change things, and in fact I think there would be some players on the market that would not be better off as a result of getting rid of patent and copyright. But that's nothing more than saying getting rid of a dictatorship or fascism or uh, welfare or social security or socialized medicine wouldn't or, – or, or the war itself right? wouldn't have disproportionate effects on some people in society. You know, If we get rid of war, then McDonnell Douglas is not going to do as well. The military-industrial complex won't do as well. I don't see that that's an argument against the change. The argument has to be in favor of the intervention in the market that causes the original change in the first place. Okay, So that said, in my opinion, if we did get rid of patent law, I believe that innovation on the whole would flourish as never before. Right now what you have is thousands, tens of thousands, if not millions if in, the, in the US alone… Of potential or small or startup companies or inventors or entrepreneurs who are completely stifled and unable to do what they want to do because there's a thicket of patents that they have to navigate and can't get past. They just cannot innovate because they don't even try because they know it's impossible. They'll get sued out of existence. The stifling effect on innovation of the patent system is uh, very likely immeasurable. But my guess is it's literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the U.S. alone, if not more. I mean the, the effect is just unimaginable. Um, I mean even mainstream uh, conservative studies have argued that in the U.S. in the last, say, 20 years, I think since 1990 to about 2005, say a 25-year period, about half a trillion dollars has been lost from patent troll lawsuits alone, which are just one small slice of the patent um, problem. So if you just multiply that, we're talking trillions of dollars over the last, say, two or three decades. So we're talking easily one, two, three hundred billion dollars a year. And in the copyright context, the distorting effect on culture is great as well, which means that if you did get rid of it, the culture would undistort. It would change. And yes, that would be a good thing. Would it be painful? I don't know. Uh, to my mind, this is not equivalent to something like um, Social Security or the immigration problem. I, I, I could see an argument that um, because of the, the, the dependency people have built up on welfare, for example, or Social Security, that if you were to get rid of, the, of this, you would need to do it gradually. I don't believe that, but I could understand that argument because – it would be too disruptive. It would people would be relied upon it, etc. But there are some things that are just so inherently evil and wrong, like the drug war, for example. I mean, there are basically no, no bad effects whatsoever from ending the drug war, except there's going to be some security agencies 
you know, imprison industry people out of a job. Okay, um, but the drug war should be ended tomorrow with no transition. And the same thing is true of the patent and the copyright system. These things should be ended completely, not just partially, and immediately, not over a period of time. The earlier we ended them, the more free we would be, the more creativity we would have, the more innovation we would have. I'm completely confident of these things, but I will stress as a Randian, as a principled libertarian, these are not my main arguments against them. My main argument against patent and copyright is that they infringe freedom. They infringe liberty. Copyright is censorship. Patents uh, are protectionism. Um, it, it, this reminds me of my original um, uh, thoughts on the antitrust issue, which I was introduced to by, say, Ayn Rand and Alan Greenspan and some of her followers, and they pointed out that there's a moral case against the antitrust laws, not just the economic case that uh, that other economists have pointed out. Uh, it's not just that antitrust laws make no sense. It's not just that cartels on the free market really can't work in the long run. It's that if two companies want to collude and set prices together, they have a right to. It's that if someone wants to charge you a very high price for a service, even if they have a so-called natural monopoly, he has a right to because you don't have a right to what he's doing. So the fundamental moral case against the antitrust law is is moral. The secondary case is utilitarian or empirical. I think they go together. But the primary case is moral, and the same thing with patent and copyright. The primary objection to copyright is that it is pure state censorship. The primary case against patents is that it is pure protectionism and suppression of innovation and competition. Um, the results are secondary to my mind, although they are devastating for the, the pro-IP case as well, which is… The primary argument given for IP is utilitarian, but it is also completely um, um, uh, bankrupt and flawed because the evidence is overwhelmingly against their utilitarian argument uh, for IP. Sorry, that was a long monologue, but uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll rest here and let you uh, go on. No, I think this is fabulous. I think <clears throat> it really uh, tackles a lot of the… <clears throat> um, a lot of the points that uh, are being made against it, um, I think that, I mean, I, for what I've read from you and, and other people, I think this is um, one of the most um, important things. And as you said, this is something that can be taken away overnight and it would actually improve the quality of life of a lot of people. Now, with that said, you know, there are fears from other individuals that say, um, for instance, um, if I am trying to uh, get the people in my company to um, think this way, you know, some some sometimes I've been given the, I tell them, you know, let's give our books for free, just post them online as PDFs, and you know the things that we teach, and then they push back with the fear, you know, what if they just take it and teach from it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we do charge ten thousand dollars a day per session, so mm -hmm. what is mm -hmm. to say that some other dude? Is not going to try to come and take it and try to do the same. I mean, what would you say to something like that? I think in some industries I can understand that concern, although I think that even in those cases the concern is built up um, in an environment which is heavily conditioned by the existing uh, legal framework. So we used to think of things in certain ways. But 
especially in the in what you're talking about in the realm of ideas protected by copyright, I believe, not by patents. Um, so, for example, I don't really blame companies for uh, high tech companies for acquiring patents portfolios in today's legal system. In fact, I think it's irresponsible not to in some cases, given the existing legal system. It would be like not using an attorney or a tax a CPA to do your taxes for income tax purposes because you're opposed to the whole system. I mean, sometimes you have to use people that know how to navigate the system. Um, sometimes you have to acquire patents just to protect yourself from other people's patents. It's a big waste, a dead law, a, a dead weight loss on society, I would say. But given the system, it's not imprudent to do so. The same thing is true for trademarks, actually. Some people criticize companies for asserting their trademarks, but unlike patents and copyrights, if you don't assert your trademark rights, you could lose them. And if you lose your trademark rights, then you could uh, lose the ability to use the name you've been using. It's not quite that simple, but I sort of sympathize with companies that send these demand letters to people saying, you're using my trademark in a certain way. You Would you please stop? Because if they don't try to assert their trademarks… They could lose their trademark rights because that's the way the system works. The same is not the true – not the same of patents and copyrights. You don't have to have patents, or if you do, you don't have to assert them. And as for copyrights, copyrights are granted automatically. So in a sense, everyone has copyright. You and I have a copyright right now in this video that we're producing together. Every time you and I post a comment on Facebook or in some blog thread or some article… We have a copyright automatically in what we write, whether you want it or not. People don't always understand this, but that's the way the system works. So when I get charges of hypocrisy like, why do you have a copyright in your book? Even though you're against copyright, you're a hypocrite. I want to obviously tear my hair out. I don't have any left. I want to tear their hair out because they either are dishonest or stupid or they don't know what they're talking about because they're blaming me for complaining about… A consequence of the system that I oppose, that they are in favor of, and it's the most hypocritical, bizarre, dishonest argument I've ever heard. It's like when – I remember – this is dating myself a little when Clarence Thomas, the black uh, US conservative Supreme Court justice, was being confirmed in the 1990s, and he's a conservative, and you know he was being pilloried and lambasted because he was a conservative and opposed to affirmative action, I suppose, and – and of course all the lefties and liberals in the US said that, well, what a hypocrite he is because he benefited from affirmative action and yet he's opposed to it. I, it's like it's there are so many errors with that way of thinking that you don't know where to start. I mean, first of all, they're repeating a criticism of their system that they deny when the like they're saying that affirmative action does have an effect. It helps people that aren't qualified for the job. They're being implicitly racist by saying Clarence Thomas was too stupid to get the job anyway, but he needed the help of affirmative action. When they deny this effect, when we, we counter that, um, and they're saying that he has no right to have his own opinion or that if you're black, you, you, you know what I mean? It's just this, this whole set of, 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 of ideas that are just maddening, and I get the same thing when I get a, accused of, uh, of being a hypocrite for having a copyright. I, these are obviously people that don't understand the system that they're allegedly in favor of. I have a copyright because it's automatic. Now, given the fact that copyright is automatic, companies hold copyrights. So what are they supposed to do with them? Now, I think 
in reality, except for very, very large organizations like uh, the broadcast industries or the entertainment industries or Hollywood, you have these fears that people have like you're talking about, the fear that someone will just take your product and, and, and compete with you really easily. As a practical matter, honestly, I believe these are almost always completely overblown. Um, I mean the, I think people have been conditioned by the given system to be – to think of people copying their material as theft instead of thinking of it as a compliment right, or as a sign of popularity. I think the best response – Excuse me. When this happens, is to simply say, "Can you can you name a sing a single concrete example where this has really ever happened?" And I mean, I know a lot about IP law and IP abuses and and the other side. And off the top of my head, I can't think of a single example of where someone someone's work was out there in public and someone just took it and I don't know put their own name on it, which is the continual. Uh, alleged Armageddon threat of the world that someone takes your work and they put their name on it and they make a million dollars off of it. I mean how easy that is to do, right? To make a million dollars off of a work that you put your name on that you didn't write. I mean that's never happens. So these are like things that just never, ever, ever happen. Um, if I want to take a course from some company, I'm going to go to that company. And if I hear about some rinky-dink outfit in another country that just – took the contents, and they're trying to give it to me for 50% cheaper or 25% cheaper, why would I do that? I don't trust them as a source. In other words, in almost every industry, the, the pure informational content of something that's easily mechanically copyable is not a primary source of the value that the customer gets. It's a host of things. It's reputation. It's service. It's reliability. It's the idea that the person providing it is giving the latest content, is going to update it, be available for contents, and other intangible factors like you want to sort of give back to the person that gave you this informational content. You don't really trust this fly-by-night person that doesn't have the, the, you know, the, the ability to create their own content, and they're just kind of copying what you're doing. Um, and furthermore, you know, if there are people that are so poor in the world that they can't afford to pay you X dollars or X – whatever the currency is for your product, um, and they go to some pirated site, uh, you know, Pirate Bay or some other site, they probably wouldn't have given you a few bucks anyway. So you're really not out anything except you've gained a new fan, which one day might become a paying customer. So I think all these sort of things are um, like imaginary demons that people come up with. Um, they're just – reluctant to let go of their rights. Look, when I became anti-copyright, I became totally abolitionist. I was already anarchist, let's say 1994. Okay, so we're talking 20, 21 years ago now. Even then, I sort of had this moral idea that, well, you should at least give people credit and maybe you should try to pay people if you use their work. But over time, I've come to the opposite view. I Over time, I've come to the view that there is really nothing whatsoever wrong in general with copying information and spreading it, period. Whether you change it, whether you morph it, whether you put your name on it, whether you put someone else's name on it, whether you give someone credit, those things are almost always irrelevant. 
There could be social norms in some narrow cases about you should give credit for big ideas in science or fashion or industry or whatever. Jokes, comedy, you know, ma magic tricks, I don't know. But as a general matter, there is nothing whatsoever wrong at all with just freely using the information that's in your head, however it got there, and generating whatever the hell you want to generate. There's just nothing wrong with that, and that's the attitude I think we need to have. That is not a libertarian attitude, I think. That's more of a, a human attitude, uh, but it's the one I've developed after years of thinking um, about this issue, uh, and I've surprised myself about it because I used to not think exactly like that. But people will tell me, well, what if I take one of your articles and I put my name on it? And you know, my thought to that is, well, you're going to look like an idiot. Okay, so I don't care. I mean, I, I think I actually would oppose it because you're going to look like an idiot, and I feel bad for you. But other than that, I don't care. And then they'll say, well, what if I take your book and I make a million dollars selling it under your name? I'm like, well, I'm selling political theory texts that make you know make very small dollars. You're, you're not going to make a million dollars off of it, and if you did, good good for you. I mean it doesn't really hurt me in a tangible, measurable way. Uh, so these examples are always outrageous and not realistic. Um, I think companies are better off if they just let their ideas get out there and if they compete and they're willing to stay on their toes and always be willing to innovate and show people that they're not afraid of competition. They're willing to be… Seen as the best, and they will show that they're the best. Go ahead, take my stuff. That's not going to make you look like me. Take, you know, I, you know, I have a lot of uh, cookbooks in my kitchen from famous chefs around the world. I guarantee these chefs are not afraid of me taking their business. And I probably have only made a few of the recipes anything near like they could make. So the information is only a small part of success. I agree, and that's some of the things that I've mentioned. You know, even if somebody really wanted to take something, <clears throat> even with the current laws, you know, they take it, and nothing is really going to stop them, right? So, what's the difference between that and just opening up, you know, open source and putting everything there? And I think what you mentioned is pretty important because, for instance, um, Kleenexes. You know, nobody really says tissues or i mean you can go to walgreens and buy their brand but like m most people buy the you know wh whatever allegiance they have to whatever first brand that came out so um you know you mentioned um the first person that comes up with it or the best person that comes up with it is is the one that usually happens to have more um uh people feel like that um loyalty to that brand you know the first one that comes up with it so whomever copies it it doesn't matter because you're going to try to do your best and you're going to be able to please your clients customers whatever yeah, it's not just that i think that um, um, think of examples like um, burger king versus mcdonald's or pepsi cola versus cola i know these are american examples but um the point is if you have an established company that's successful and you have some other entrepreneur who has a burning desire and they want to compete and they want to be better, you know, like Dell computers or something like that. Whoever's behind that, okay, they're either going to be a shady, fraudulent counterfeiter who's trying to defraud people and pretend, you know, I mean, I'm going to get into business selling knockoff McDonald's hamburgers. Okay. 
or I'm going to get into business selling. My whole dream in life is to sell knockoff um, uh, Rolex watches okay, or knockoff iPhones. I mean the business model just won't work. It's going to be a shady knock. There is a market for knockoffs, but they're known as knockoffs. You can probably go on the on the side alleys in China and buy an iPhone knockoff, which is probably okay for I don't know thirty dollars. I don't know, but no one buying that is deluded into thinking they're buying a real iPhone. Now, if you go into a big glitzy glamour shopping mall where the Apple stores are, or something like that, and there's a let's say there's a fake Apple store selling fake Apple stuff. Well, the first seventeen customers are going to be finally figure it out, and they're going to be pissed off, and the word's going to spread. Hey, the Galleria in Houston has a fake Apple store. You know, no one's going to go to the Galleria anymore because they don't police the tenants that they're leasing to. If I go to the Kroger supermarket down the street and I buy super toothpaste, it's called um, Crest toothpaste, and it's really some Russian knockoff, and it rots my teeth. Kroger is going to start losing business like crazy. So there's you, you just don't need. IP law to police these reputational certification type measures that would already happen. So the whole idea is is a, is a crazy. But the point is, anyone that's a legitimate competitor wants to put their own name on it. You know, Apple. You think they're best? Okay, I think I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be something. I'm going to be Kinsella Computers. You know, or Coca Cola. You think you're the best? Well, we're going to be Pepsi. We're going to be better than you. You know. Uh, McDonald's, you think you're the best? We're going to be Wendy's or we're going to be Burger King. The danger of people choosing the same names is, is the same danger as everyone choosing a yellow car in a given country or naming their sons John. It just doesn't happen because people look around and they say, oh, I see there's too many red cars on the streets this year. I'm going to get a blue car or, oh, the name Ethan is very popular this year for boys. I don't want my kid to have the same name as every other kid. I'm going to name him you know, Juan Pablo or something. This is what people do. They want to distinguish themselves. This idea that everyone wants to pretend like they're some identical du duplicate of someone else just to defraud people and to think that they could get away with it is completely ludicrous. It's just a straw man dreamt up by advocates of IP. I love that. And so that takes me to the next thing. You know, corporations, are they are they evil? Are corporations evil? Because I, I see that day in and day out on Facebook and then on, you know, always demonizing corporations because, you know, some of the things that we've talked about, can corporations exist in a voluntary society? So this is to me – it's an interesting question. Um, I just had a long talk on the Tom Woods show about this this topic. Um, um, let me let me so let me approach it from a few different ways. Number one, I believe that the hostility towards corporations is usually a hostility towards business in general. Okay, so the word corporation is used as a stand-in for the firm. Or the business. Again, because most people using these terms don't really quite understand them legally, so they don't understand that there are different types of legal legal entities or organizations you can use. You can use LLPs, you can use LLCs, you can use all kinds of specialized things: sole proprietorships, regular partnerships, um, etc. 
Um, so largely when corporations are attacked, it's usually by lefties attacking bigness, large size, or capitalism, or the, the very idea of um, uh, of, of – well, in the case of left libertarians even, the idea of employment, having a hierarchical structure where someone employs someone else. But of course none of those are endemic to corporations. You could have the same thing with partnerships or other forms of organization of business. Um, so I, I sometimes think this is just a, uh, a proxy for the attack on capitalism itself, and that's a whole different discussion, and I disagree with most of those attacks. Um, as for the corporation itself, this is a little bit like the IP situation except I think there's some differences. So in the IP situation, you have some proponents of intellectual property, and they will say, well, if you believe in contract, you believe in intellectual property because we could arrange intellectual property by contract. Like if I sell you a book and I put a, a limit on there, like you can't <laughs> you can't learn from this book at all or ever re remember anything you learned from it or loan it to anyone else, and that's a contract, and that's copyright. Now, what they don't understand is that's not copyright because copyright isn't – not to get too legally technical, but copyright – and patent or in rem rights or property rights, they're supposed to be rights against the world. Contract rights only bind the parties. So what these people don't understand is that you can never get anything like copyright from a uh, contract. Then the question is, could you get something somewhat similar to it? Okay. And then we get into a whole nother discussion. Now, if you go to corporations. In a sense, I agree with the critics of corporations in that, number one, I'm an anarchist, and I think we should abolish the state. Number two, I'm a libertarian who's opposed to legislation, even if I'm not an anarchist. I mean not an anarchist, and so I think legislation is not a proper way to make law, and corporations can only result in the modern sense from legislation and states. So I would agree… That we should abolish the state statutes that permit people to file a document with the government establishing a corporate charter. So I would agree with him on that. Just like I would agree that we should abolish copyright and patent statutes. The difference is this. The, advo the anarchist advocates of patent and copyright somehow envisioned that you could have a simulation of patent and copyright… Arranged privately by contract in the absence of legislation. Now, they're wrong because they don't understand, as I said, that patent and copyright are in rem rights. They're property rights which cannot be generated by contract. However, the same criticism cannot be made of a similar argument in the case of corporations, which is that if you got rid of the corporation statutes, you could have an entity arise under the private law. Totally compatible with principles of, of contract and property law and property rights, which is similar in every respect to corporations except that it doesn't have the official state name corporation. So in that case, I think that they could arise. Um, they could arise because the three features of corporations, um, which is um, – um, um, well, let me focus on two of them. One is uh, uh, indefinite duration, in other words, perpetual Duration. They can last forever. That's easy to arrange by a contract. You can do it in the case of a trust. Or you can do it in the case of a, 
a restrictive covenant in a neighborhood, that's easy to do. People that don't believe this don't understand how clever and creative lawyers can be. Trust, trust me, you can do this by private contract alone. The, the controversial feature of corporations is limited liability of the shareholders. So the question is simply this. If you got rid of state grants of corporation charters, which I favor and which the anti-corporation people also favor, what would you have in its place? And my view is that you would have basically exactly what we have now because the assumption on the part of the anti-corporation people is that you would have this limited liability grant to the shareholders, which we have now because of the state, go away, which means the shareholders would have liability, which means the corporate form would not be viable because there would be too much liability on the part of the shareholders. That's the implicit assumption, very rarely made explicit. Because if you make it explicit, it's too easy to expose as being fallacious, or it's not made explicit because the people that make these arguments don't understand corporate law, which is mainly the case. The problem with the argument is that it assumes that shareholders should and would and ought to have liability for the torts committed by employees of this so-called corporation. Okay, Now, that theory itself requires justification. In a free market society, in a free society, the basic rule is that people have property rights in their, in their bodies and in things they legitimately acquire, and they have responsibility or obligations to, to make restitution to people that they harm. Right? That's the basic premise of a free society is that you have rights and you have obligations. You have rights – responsibilities, and your primary responsibility is to respect others' rights just as you expect your rights to be respected, and if you violate those rights, you have the obligation to make them whole, to make rectification or restitution somehow. So in other words, if you commit an action that invades the property borders of someone else, you have to make them whole. That's the premise, but when you jump from that to shareholders should be liable… Now you're jumping to a second thing, which is that, aha, we know that person A has harmed person B, so person A is responsible. But now we're saying that person, person C is, is secondarily liable for the original tortfeasor's harms. That's called secondary or vicarious responsibility or liability. And that is the underlying presump presump presumption of the corporate critics. They assume that shareholders should be liable for their torts committed by some other person. Now, it's possible that they should be. I'll grant that because there are cases in society where people should be responsible for other people's actions. If a mafia boss orders his underling to go kill someone, I think that the mafia boss and the hitman are both 100% guilty independently, jointly and severally for murder of the victim. If President Truman orders a bomber to bomb uh, – to drop a nuclear bomb on civilians in Japan, then I believe President Truman is liable, unlike some libertarians, I would say. So I, I have no problem attributing responsibility to all the actors causally and intentionally responsible for the harm caused. But the question is, is this the case for shareholders? And in my view, it's not. There is no strong case to be made that shareholders 
just by virtue of holding a piece of paper that gives them the right to participate in certain profits of this enterprise or responsible for the actions of some employees they've never even met. So to me, it's an individualistic point of view. You have to look at individuals, and you, you cannot extend the liability of one person for their wrongful actions to someone else without a good reason. And the problem of the people that oppose the corporation is that they don't argue for a reason. They assume it's the reason. So they assume that if the state had not come in and exempted these shareholders from liability that they would be liable. What they need to do is show that the shareholders should be liable, and my view is that any, any theory I've ever seen or could imagine that would make the shareholders liable would be, have to be so broad that it would make almost everyone else in society liable. In other words, if the, if the person who owns one share of Coca-Cola stock is liable for millions or billions of dollars of damages because of… A, a tortious accident by one of their drivers, just because she owns a share of stock in Coca-Cola, then so would be the suppliers, the vendors, the customers, the other employees. Everyone has their hand in there somehow. They're all benefiting. They're all cooperating. They're all aiding and abetting. You could say they're helping Coca-Cola by just buying a can of Coke. You're helping Coca-Cola commit its mass crimes. Okay, So that's the argument you would have to make. In other words, one truck driver's negligent accident that harms someone makes literally tens if not hundreds of millions if not billions of people personally liable for hundreds of millions of dollars, and I think that's absurd and ridiculous. We would reach a world where none of us could do anything because everything we did, if I purchased anything from any vendor… Now I'm liable all the way up the, cha the chain of production for every single action of every employee, of every contractor, of every person associated with – every person associated with that uh, – the chain of causation that produced that product that I bought. I spend a dollar on a newspaper, and now I'm liable for the um, negligent actions of the ink producer that, may, you know, that, that supply the ink to the newspaper, and so on and so on. And … I have never seen a careful, serious, sincere attempt at a theory of causation and causal responsibility um, that exempts the people that are obviously absurdly going to be captured by a broad theory and captures only the shareholders. The only way they do that is they rely upon the state's own classifications. They say, well, well, the shareholder is an owner after all. How do we know that? Well, the state calls them an owner, so let's go with what the state says. So you see, and I can I can go on and on and on about this. Um, um, th these arguments are made by people, and by the way, very often the argument for against limited liability is made by people who have no clue about corporate law. They will say things like. Um, 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 uh, it's wrong that uh, the, the managers and the directors are exempt from liability. It's like, well, that's not what sharehold that's not what limited liability does. It only exempts the shareholders. And in fact, they actually get it backwards. From what I know about the way corporate law and um, say Western law works generally, the state does grant limited liability to 
passive shareholders. That is, if a shareholder is active and they're actually influencing the direction of the board of the company, they actually could be sued. So that's actually rational. But by a rational theory of causation, if a manager of the company directs a employee to perform an, a negligent act, the manager is usually not sued. Usually the victim sues the direct actor, which would be the truck driver or whoever. And then they sue the corporation because that's what the state is set up as the as the entity that can receive lawsuits. The manager is not usually sued. So the state laws basically perversely insulate the truly secondarily liable characters, the managers who have their hand in the negligent actions of the direct employees. Um, and yet the, the lefties complain that the shareholders who have nothing to do with it. Or not liable, and then they sometimes say that the managers shouldn't be not liable, and yet the, the liability laws don't exempt them anyway. So the complaints are from people that are completely confused about the laws that they're, they're opposed to, similar to the way that people that uh, oppose abolition of IP law don't really ex understand what the IP laws they implicitly favor uh, actually do. I appreciate that. That's <clears throat> really thorough, and it, it, I really hope that everybody that is watching this is able to understand everything because this this is just such a big eye opener. And uh, the next thing that is kind of related to this, you know, you mentioned the uh, accident. I mean, the hypothetical situation. How is this related to environmentalism? Um, like, how could we, for instance? Um, I know that you know you were working a little bit with Chase Rachels on on his book that he's writing, and he mentioned something about the idea that uh, environmentalism could be worked in a way that, uh, like in a free society, how could we take care of it? And I think that it's related to private property. But what what is your take on this? Hmm. Well, I would say that I basically agree with Rothbard's approach in his uh, kind of classic, I want to say 1982 article in the Cato Journal uh, about air pollution and property rights. It's not comprehensive. It's not complete. It's not perfect. But I think the basic approach there is basically the right one, and it's rooted in ultimately in what I think is the only sensible um, approach to – Um, political or interpersonal norms, which is the Misesian one, and ultimately, I think Hoppe and Hoppe's approach uh, kind of you know finalized this or, or reached the, the culmination of this. The idea is that all laws. I mean, Rothbard pointed this out in Ethics of Liberty that all property rights, sorry, all rights are property rights. All human rights are property rights. All individual rights are property rights. And what did he mean by that? What he meant was that every right comes down to a claim to control the exclusive use of a given resource. And it, if there's a dispute, it comes down to the necessary use of force to defend your claim. And if it's civilized, then the legal system would… Take a side and, and have the, the, the background threat of force or communal norms to back up that, that, that claim. But ultimately it's about force 
physical clashing and conflict over resources which are, are scarce or rivalrous resources. So if you understand that, then every single rights claim, every single dispute that could ever happen in human history is really always a dispute among two or more people over a given resource, which implies if you work it backwards that the only way to have a peaceful, prosperous, civilized society is to have a system where we have a way to allocate rights of control over these contested resources in a case of a contest, in a case of a dispute. And we have a way to do that, and that is basically the you know the first person who gets it has a better claim unless you gave it to someone else by contract, etc. Now, to apply these rules, these sort of general abstract principles in concrete situations requires more and more legal specificity, more and more nuances, more and more customs and traditions and understandings and interactions of people to be taken into account. And this is actually what has happened and what does happen over time. There is no reason to believe that this couldn't apply to any conceivable resource, which would include the resources that come into play when we have these pollution and these environmental issues. Basically, every potential conflict is a conflict over resources. So when there's a dispute among people, it's always a, really a dispute about control of those resources. So if it's about dirty air or polluting a river or overfishing the seas or too much traffic in a given commons area, the solution is always, always when these issues become – when they reach a point where the resource at issue goes from being, as Rothbard called it, a general background condition of action or a general condition of action or um, uh, it, it becomes a means of action. Something that's scarce. At that point, it becomes the possible subject of property rights. Now, how we allocate the property rights can be up to dispute. It can be difficult in some cases, but there could be no dispute that that's the right way to go, that we need to have a civilized, reasonable, maybe sometimes compromising process to come up with a way to determine who gets to use these resources to prevent the tragedy of the commons, to prevent trespass, etc. Now, I think this was recognized in the law, as Rothbard points out, like in the early law, which called nuisance law. Now, the law developed in a not completely libertarian way in the king's courts. It's not completely uh, consistent, but by and large, in fits and starts, it resembled what we could imagine uh, being a way to eke out a concrete way of working out the abstract legal principles that are compatible with our libertarian ideas. And so the law of nuisance, for example, in my mind, I don't view it as, as the law of nuisance. I view it as a property right issue. That the law calls it a nuisance is fine, but the idea there was that if A owns a tract of land and B owns a tract of land, and if one of them uses his property in such a way that it disturbs the other person's use of his property in an unreasonable way… Then it's a so-called nuisance, and it can be enjoined or stopped. So that's kind of a, 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 a legalistic way of saying that A's use of his property or A's actions, I would say, invaded B's property rights. That's fine. 
there's a threshold issue. There usually is a threshold issue, and that happened in this case. They can characterize it as a nuisance if they want, but it's it all comes down ultimately in my mind to property rights. And I think there could be no doubt that if we had a more uh, universal understanding of the need for property rights, and if basically we realized that every possible contestable resource on the earth or in the universe needs to be the subject of property rights, then that's the solution to any possible dispute. I mean this is the nature of property rights is to solve disputes in property right in, in scarce resources. That's exactly the answer that I was looking for. I think it's uh, really powerful to see that um, you know how could I uh, just a little probably um, elucidation people on the right you know they favor capitalism or at least you know part of it but people on the left kind of dislike it but they're always about environmentalism and all that so I'm just trying to make the connection of how the idea of liberty allows for everybody to be able to get what they want and what they need and <clears throat> the idea that environmentalism could work better in a free society exactly with what you said the the um, it, it, through private um, Private law and, and the idea of private property. So I'm I'm really grateful for that that response. Um, I don't want to take a whole lot more of your time. We've been talking for a little while. Is there anything that you would like to tell us as a closing statement? Maybe some plugins that you would like to throw. Well, I guess I would mention one thing uh, on the environmental topic. Um, I just read part of a new book. I think it's by Alex Epstein. He's an objectivist. I think. And it's about fossil – it's like – I think it's called The Moral Case in Defense of Fossil Fuels or something like that. And I heard him speak on one of the podcasts, and um, I think it was on Tom Woods actually. Um, so on this environmentalism talk, I would recommend I, I would recommend people look at Alex Epstein's book on the moral, the moral case for fossil fuels. Um, I read the first couple of chapters on a plane with my friend, and I heard his uh, speech, and it seems excellent. Um, even though he's an objectivist, haha, you know, so, <laughs> uh, so no, nothing else to plug. Um, I would say keep up the good work and I've enjoyed this and we can have uh, follow-ups later if you like.